0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today's Thursday, February 1. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, the headline, Reynolds's Bill to Overhaul Education Agencies Hits Snag. And this story is by Caleb McCullough for the Gazette-Lee Des Moines Bureau. Suzanne Costello became emotional and at times raised her voice as she spoke Wednesday to Iowa lawmakers about the aid and services her son has received from the area education agency in her region. Her son Gabe has dyslexia and dysgraphia, which impact his ability to read and write. He had difficulties in preschool, was sitting still, and needed an occupational therapist. For four years, Castello homeschooled him. Now he attends Grinnell High School. And through it all, Castello said, the local AEA has guided Gabe with specialized professionals and services. There are deep problems in our school districts in delivery of education, she told lawmakers. I do not see the AEA as a problem, and I'm really mad that I am in an institution that is depriving school districts of money and keeps on skimping and skimping and skimping. And then, when there's not enough money to actually get good education, then they say, oh, you're failing. So, we're just going to cut the overhead. Costello was one of the dozens of people at the Iowa Capitol to speak Wednesday against a bill proposed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds that would overhaul the state's area education agencies and give schools the ability to opt out of their special education services and seek them from another party. The proposal, House Study Bill 542, also met resistance from majority Republican lawmakers in both the House and the Senate, as it faced its first hurdle to becoming law. Republican Representative Schuyler Wheeler of Hull, chair of the House Education Committee, declined to advance the bill out of a subcommittee, saying he wanted further conversations before we take action on the bill. Over in the Senate, Republicans advanced the bill but pledged it would see more changes as it moves forward. Republican Representative David Young of Van Meter an assistant Republican leader in the House, expressed skepticism about the bill's future in the chamber. He said there is not a lot of appetite for the reforms called for in the proposal, but said Republicans support the teacher pay increases also included in the bill. Reynolds pitched the bill as a key piece of her agenda for this year's session. She said the change is necessary as test scores of Iowa students with disabilities have lagged, but the state spends a comparatively high amount of money on those students. We need to just step back and start to ask some of those questions with the overall objective of making sure that we're doing everything we can to get these kids with disabilities the education that they deserve and hopefully see better outcomes, Reynolds told reporters Wednesday. So you can't police yourself, get all the money, mandate I use you, and not be held accountable when the scores are not reflecting what they should be. That's unconscionable. Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the State Department of Education, provide special education services to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. Under the proposal which Reynolds amended this week, federal and state special education funds would be sent directly to school districts, which could then decide whether to contract with the AEAs. If they do not, school districts would still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities, but could obtain that instruction from a third party like a private company. Currently, AEAs receive special education funding for the schools in their region and are tasked with providing that education to those districts. AEAs all still would be allowed to provide other services to school districts under Reynolds's amended proposal if the district requests them and they are approved by the Education Department. The bill would keep in place a $35 million property tax levy that schools can use to pay for the AEA's educational services, but remove a $33 million property tax stream that funds the agency's media services. The Education Service Fund could be used for media services. Under the proposal, much of the AEA's operations and oversight would also come under the purview of the State Department of Education. The department director would be in charge of hiring AEA directors, making decisions on combining and dissolving AEAs, and approving budgets submitted by the AEAs. The bill also would create a special education division in the Department of Education and bring the employees in charge of oversight under the Department of Education. That change would lead to more than 200 AEA staff positions being cut, Reynolds said. The bill also includes a provision to increase the starting salary for teachers to $50,000. Teachers with at least 12 years of experience would be paid at least $62,000. Superintendents spoke both for and against the bill during subcommittee meetings Some superintendents who backed the bill said they want to maintain control of the special ed dollars for their students, and they said they can provide those same services for a lower cost. Corey Seymour, superintendent of the Clear Creek Amana Community School District, said the Grant Wood AEA, based in Cedar Rapids, has provided vital services, but he believes districts should be in charge of funding for their students with disabilities. Each district is different, and with control of our flow-through funds, we will be able to create an individual education plan for our entire district, he said. If services are adequate and addresses the needs of our district, we will continue to use them. But others with smaller districts would not be able to provide the same level of services. Without absorbing the funding from all the schools in the district, they said, AEAs would not be able to pay for services needed by schools with less money. Brad Buck, the Waukee Community School District Superintendent and former Iowa Department of Education Director under Governor Terry Branstad, said the bill would hurt rural school districts and create winners and losers. There's no way this math works like it's being described, he told Senate lawmakers. I'm just telling you that it's far from likely that larger districts will come out in better shape. Excuse me, it's far more likely that larger districts will come out in better shape, and this bill will impact smaller and especially rural districts. After passing the Senate subcommittee, the bill is eligible for a vote in the full committee. The Republicans on that committee, though, cautioned that the bill would likely see a number of changes. Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Pella, chair of the Senate Education Committee, said he believes the A.E.A.s need a tune-up or probably a more major overhaul. It is unclear whether the bill will advance in the House. After February 16, any bill that is not reported out of committee is generally not eligible for further consideration. But I believe it's also widely acknowledged that we don't have all the answers in front of us today, Rosenboom said. I believe we need to continue the legislative process to find these answers. I'll roll up my sleeves and continue to find solutions that serve our children well. Democrats opposed the bill in both committees. They said the bill would consolidate too much power under the Department of Education and worried that the bill was written without input from stakeholders in the state. There is no flexibility in this bill, said Senator Molly Donahue, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids. It takes local control away from our schools and districts 133 times. If you're unhappy with the administrative costs, then deal with the administrative costs. Don't throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. And the article includes photos of several people who were present to discuss the options of the bill. Suzanne Costello of Kellogg, uh, for what is pictured in one of the photos as she spoke during the Senate Education Subcommittee hearing. Also on the front page today, Mercy, Iowa City officially becomes UI Healthcare Downtown Campus. This story by Vanessa Miller. Although the skywalk spanning Market Street connecting portions of the historic Mercy Hospital campus Wednesday morning still boasted that 150 year old name and its teal and white colors, a sign along the street below announced Mercy's new owner and new name, University of Iowa Healthcare Downtown Campus. Sign and brand removal and replacement were among the changes underway on Wednesday, closing day for the hospital's $28 million sale to the UI, winning bidder of a bankruptcy auction for most of Mercy's assets. UIHC administrators also held meet-and-greets and and celebratory events featuring UI mascot Herky, the university cheer squad, and therapy dogs. Our first focus for the coming weeks is really going to be primarily to welcome our new colleagues and to ensure that patients continue to have access to the services that exist, UIHC Vice President for Medical Affairs Denise Jamieson told reporters on Wednesday. Going forward in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking to community members. We're going to be talking to patients. We're going to be making an assessment as to what services are needed, she said, of the 194-bed community hospital currently offering emergency care, heart and vascular care, birth care, general surgery, primary care, and orthopedic surgery, among other services. To a question of whether Mercy will continue to offer all those same services long-term, Jameson said it's really too soon to comment on exactly what services are going to be needed in the coming weeks and months. In bidding to buy Mercy, which filed for bankruptcy August 7, after years of financial decline, the university also committed to spend $25 million over five years on infrastructure improvements. There are things that will need to be improved and addressed, such as parking structures and electronic medical records, Jamison said. Mercy's electronic medical record provider, Altera, has agreed to cooperate with a transition to UIHC ownership despite significant pushback for months. The goal is to get all Mercy patient records into the EPIC system the electronic medical record provider the university uses, Jamison said. The transition will add about 1,000 Mercy employees, including 45 physicians, 33 advanced practice practitioners, along with nurses and others, to the UIHC workforce. In early January, the university offered jobs to about 1,100 Mercy staffers and 53 physicians, nearly all the doctors remaining from the 90-plus who reportedly worked at Mercy when it filed for bankruptcy in August. Those who accepted the offers will get their last Mercy paycheck February 9. They'll get their first monthly UIHC paycheck March 1st. And while not all Mercy employees were offered the same pay with UIHC as they were getting, the university has touted its robust benefits package, including health care, retirement plans, company contributions, vacation, sick leave, and paid holidays. Those benefits, according to UI officials, up the value of a $60,000 base salary to $80,922. We're really proud of the benefits and the other opportunities that we provide as a university system, Jamison said, and the employees will have access to those opportunities going forward. Although Mercy will maintain an open medical staff, meaning community providers can continue to practice on that campus, UIHC will remain closed meaning doctors must be on the UI faculty to treat patients on its main medical campus, two miles west. Some UIHC faculty might start practicing on the former Mercy campus, Jameson said, although the reverse won't be true. In the coming weeks, we're going to pretty much keep things the way they are, so that patients know where to go, so that services are not interrupted, she said. But long-term, we need a strategy for how we're going to provide care in the future. And we're really going to look toward the community and look toward our patients to provide that input. For now, the UIHC plan is to see patients at their preferred location, meaning patients who have been happy to receive care at the former Mercy site can still get their care there. If you are a patient as a result of the Mercy, Iowa City transition of ownership, Welcome to the University of Iowa Healthcare. According to a new uihc.org/downtown website launched on Wednesday, you can expect to receive the same high-quality healthcare. UIHC on Wednesday also updated the mercyiowacity.org website with black and gold colors and an Iowa Healthcare header, guiding patients to a Frequently Asked Questions feature. This marks a new and exciting chapter for healthcare in our state James had said this is an opportunity for UI healthcare to move forward toward a more integrated model of care helping iowans get the right care at the right place at the right time the patient faq indicated some changes as mercy transitions to the UIhc system such as how payments are made and processed it will take some time to work through payment changes, according to the website. For now, you will not be able to pay for services performed at any of the former Mercy, Iowa City locations via your UI Healthcare bill through MyChart. The university also reported operational changes will prevent it from accepting in-clinic payments for several months, and then it won't accept cash payments when in-clinic payments resume. Going cashless in our clinics simplifies our operations and increases safety and efficiency for patients and staff. Angela Constantino, age 30, said she was a relatively new Mercy Iowa City patient and liked the hospital for its community feel. I was pretty excited about Mercy just because it was easier to get a human on the phone, she said. I just felt a little more personal. Constantino, though, said she also has a lot of respect for UIHC and its health care. They really do a really great job, she said. So hopefully it carries over, but could still say, stay a little more personal. Turning now to the Iowa Today page Cedar Rapids to welcome four candidates for police chief. This story by Emily Anderson. Four applicants out of 17 will be moving on to the interview stage of consideration to become the new Cedar Rapids Police Chief, and the public is invited to meet them next week. The four candidates, Jennifer Burkhofer, Jeff Coday, Tom Witten, and David Dostel were selected by the Cedar Rapids Civil Service Commission Tuesday, and all four were approved by City Manager Jeff Pomerantz. Profiles of each candidate, which they submitted to the City, were released on Wednesday. Each of the candidates will be interviewed on February 7 by five panels of city and community leaders. A public meet-and-greet with the candidates will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. that evening at the Cedar Rapids Doubletree by Hilton Convention Center, 350 1st Avenue Northeast. After the interviews and the meet-and-greet, Pomerantz will identify two final candidates and he may visit the candidate's current departments and communities. The final step will be Pomerance's appointment of a chief with the advice and consent of the mayor and counsel. Jennifer Burkhofer. Burkhofer, an Iowa native, is a deputy sheriff at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Omaha, Nebraska. She started her law enforcement career in 2004 as a corrections officer in Pottawatomie County and has worked in Douglas County since 2005. She has served in various roles at the Douglas Sheriff's Office, including road patrol, court services, and administrative services. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's degree in public administration, and she is a graduate of the FBI National Academy. In her administrative role in Omaha, Burkhoffer overhauled the recruitment process in the department to focus on recruiting and cultivating a diverse workforce reflective of the community, according to her profile. Jennifer's overall career has embodied a commitment to ensuring professional law enforcement services for the community while enhancing organizational effectiveness and fostering inclusivity within the law enforcement profession. Her profile reads, Jeff Coday. Coday has spent 23 of his 27 years in law enforcement in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. He has served in several roles, including leading Northwest Area Command, Bureau Commander of Internal Affairs, and he currently leads the department's Traffic Bureau. He also has worked as a field training officer, property crimes investigator, narcotics investigator, field training sergeant, advanced officer skills training sergeant, and special investigations section lieutenant. Before joining the Las Vegas Department, Coday worked for the Springfield, Missouri, Police Department. He has a bachelor's degree in biology, a master's degree in crisis and emergency management, and he is a graduate of the Northwestern University School of Police Staff and Command and the FBI National Academy. Captain Coday is committed to keeping the community safe and building trust in improving community relations through transparency and community engagement. His candidate profile reads, Tom Witten. Witten has previously worked as a chief of police in three police departments, Harlington, Texas, Carlsbad, New Mexico, and DeWitt, Iowa, and is currently the chief deputy in the El Paso County Sheriff's Office in Texas. Before becoming a police chief, Witten served as the US Air, uh, served in the US Air Force and worked at the El Paso, Texas Police Department. He retired in 2009. Witten has achieved national accreditation for his current department and for the DeWitt Police Department. He has two master's degree in criminal justice administration and public administration and a bachelor's degree in criminal justice administration. He also has a Master Peace Officer certification from Texas and is a graduate of the FBI National Academy. Chief Witten is committed to the concepts of 21st century policing and procedural justice. He also understands the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion and has ensured his departments mirror the communities they serve. Witten's profile states, David Dasto." Dostal is the only Cedar Rapids Police Department applicant to advance to this stage of the hiring process. He was born in Cedar Rapids and graduated from LaSalle High School in 1986. He started working in the Cedar Rapids Police Department in 1991 after graduating from Cornell College with a bachelor's degree in sociology. Dostal is a captain in the Administrative Operations Division of the Police Department where he works with the Joint Communications Agency, the Records Division, Animal Care and Control, Buildings and Grounds and Training, including working with the Cedar Rapids Regional Academy. He has worked in several other roles, including the Special Response Team, Field Training Officer, Bicycle Patrol Officer and Instructor, Patrol Shift Supervisor, and Patrol Shift Commander. Dostal is a former member of the Xavier High School Board of Education and an active member in the St. Ludmilla Catholic Parish. He and his wife, Melissa, have been married for 30 years. Their son, Nolan, is an officer in the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Turning now to the Insight page, Secure the Border or Help Trump's Campaign, is the title of the guest editorial, This is a reprint from Wednesday's Los Angeles Times. For months, the encouragement of the Biden administration, or excuse me, for months with the encouragement of the Biden administration, a bipartisan group of senators has been hammering out a compromise on new border security measures as part of a $110 billion supplemental spending bill that would also include aid for Ukraine in its defense against Russian aggression. Yet even before the agreement is unveiled, Donald Trump has denounced it, thundering, I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. Speaker Mike Johnson, whose Republican House majority functions as an adjunct of Trump's presidential campaign, has suggested that if rumors about the measure are true, it is dead on arrival in that chamber. Trump's attempt to sabotage the agreement, even as it is still being negotiated, suggests that he cares less about border security than about being able to hammer Biden on the issue on the campaign trail. Trump acknowledged as much when he said last week in a statement that a border deal now would be another gift to the radical left republic, or excuse me, Democrats. To their credit, senators are persevering in spite of Trump's meddling, and an agreement appears imminent. Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma the lead Republican negotiator, defended the legislation, suggesting that some of his Republican colleagues misunderstood what it would do. Biden said that the bill would be the toughest and fairest set of reforms to secure the border we've ever had in our country. Reportedly, senators have been discussing tightening the standards for the credible fear of prosecution or torture used in initial interviews with migrants requesting asylum. Apparently, the bill, as it has evolved, would not include drastic restrictions on the president's ability to admit migrants under his humanitarian parole authority. Biden also said that the emerging legislation would give him new emergency authority to shut down the border when it becomes overwhelmed. And the president reiterated his request for Congress to fund additional Border Patrol agents immigration judges, and asylum officers. Important as securing the border might be, it shouldn't be a prerequisite for an urgent infusion of military aid for Ukraine. Ongoing U.S. support sends the important message that Russian aggression elsewhere will not be tolerated. For now, assistance for Ukraine depends on progress on border security. Senators who are pursuing a reasonable compromise are right to stand strong, despite resistance by Trump and his enablers in the House. 24-Hour Doorman today is titled Reynolds' AEA Plan Has Foes But No Friends. Governor Kim Reynolds could have been a collaborator, but yet again she chose to be a dictator. Instead of calling together teachers, school administrators, parents, State lawmakers and others with a stake in the future of area education agencies, Reynolds relied on the work of a consultant to guide her plan to dramatically alter Iowa AEAs. All Reynolds would do is dramatically change how AEAs are funded and hand their management over to the Department of Education. When the dust settles, services they offer schools will be curtailed and some aea's surely will close what's the big deal reynolds's consultant guidehouse bombed iowa's aea system from fifty thousand feet it pointed to lagging standardized test scores for students with disabilities Providing special education support for Iowa is the core mission of AEAs. So Reynolds decided to allow schools to keep special education funds that now flow into AEAs and curtailed other services to schools. Guidehouse was critical of AEA's management structure and advocated for putting the Department of Education in charge. So Director Mackenzie Snow a school choice advocate with no experience as a teacher or school administrator will call the shots. But there were no boots on the ground. The Guidehouse report contains no interviews with teachers, parents, or school administrators. Also missing is an explanation of how these changes will make education better or how test scores will rise. Maybe you've noticed the governor is the only one advocating for its passage. On Wednesday, her bill was halted in a subcommittee. Meanwhile, thousands of Iowans have weighed in to oppose her plan. Who exactly is in favor of this? Not smaller school districts who will lose support and services if larger districts take their AEA money and run. The objective, when AEAs were formed in 1974, was that all districts in a region benefited by pooling resources. Not school district leaders who are now realizing if they take the money and go it alone, They'll be responsible for following a tangled web of federal rules. Currently, AEAs do the untangling. Not private schools that currently access services through AEAs. Without AEA resources, private schools would have to ask local school districts for help. That could be awkward after the governor diverted hundreds of millions in public dollars for private school scholarships. And not parents with kids who are individual- or who have individual education programs, or IEPs, developed with the assistance of AEAs. They've built a support system for their child at school that now could be unraveled, even privatized. Will parents, for instance, be able to take time off work to bring their kid to private service providers? If those parents who can't be bought off with campaign contributions aren't interested in the usual legislative horse-trading and can't be intimidated by political retribution from the governor. They're simply advocating for their kids, and no amount of deck chair shuffling will convince them to dive into the frightening uncertainty spawned by the governor's plan. Those families and educators should drive an AEA reform effort. This is no time for a dictator. It's time to slow down and collaborate. And that's 24-Hour Dorman. One community letter today is titled, Watching Demise of Iowa Under Republican Control. I cannot describe the depth of my excitement and pride in knowing that Iowa legislators have invested themselves micromanaging our teachers and medical professionals, and that they continue to do so in spite of the increasing levels of homelessness, the lack of affordable housing, hunger, especially when we know we cannot trust parents to make healthy choices, so we deprive them of federally available money, the medical deserts of our Iowa counties, the increasingly decreasing availability of mental health services. Those people are much better served in prison anyway, aren't they? The removal of local control of school districts and, of course, critical infrastructure, especially our bridges. I know that it is important Republicans continue their proud tradition of smaller government and increase the removal of basic rights. Unless you are a corporation, then, of course, you have the rights of a person. So, continue in pride, Iowa legislature. Know that I am right there behind you. Let's just rip away those silly basic human rights of housing, clothing, food, education, and medical care, including mental health and the ability to drive across the state without worrying, a bridge may collapse. That letter today is signed by Brenda Mayer of Iowa City. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 1st, on IRIS. And now we continue with the obituary page, beginning with the short notices. First from Burr Oak, Glenn Raymond Thunberg, age 82, died Tuesday, January 30. Helms Funeral Home. In Cedar Rapids, L.C.M. Armstrong, age 80, died Tuesday, January 30. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services. In Center Point, Jimmy Vopalka, age 75, died Tuesday, January 30. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Marion, Wilburn Joseph Hollis, age 83, died Wednesday, January 31st, Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home in Vinton. Rita Moore, age 89, died Tuesday, January 30, Van Steenheystian Funeral Home, and in Williamsburg, Wilma Mary Harrell, age 98, died Tuesday, January 30, Powell Funeral Home is assisting. Turning now to the regular notices, first in Cedar Rapids, Thomas Eugene Meeker, age 85, died Tuesday, January 30, at Living Center West. Per Tom's request, there will be no service or visitation. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Tom was born August 7, 1938, in Ottumwa, Iowa, the son of Clarence and Vera Jackson Meeker, he married Patricia S. Pokaber on October 31, 1964, in Cedar Rapids and retired from Rockwell Collins as a welder in 1995. From Franklin, Kentucky, Marion G. Marug, age 81, died Thursday, January twenty fifth, at her residence. Crafton Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. A private service will be held at a later date. A native of Central City, Iowa, she was the daughter of the late Merton Wayne Dean and Neva Irene Henderson Dean. She was a cosmetologist and an employee at the Kendall Company for over 30 years. From Lisbon, Kenneth Wilkins, age 84, passed away with his family by his side on Monday, January 29. A visitation will be held from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. on Monday. February 5 at Cedar Memorial Park Chapel, State Room, Cedar Rapids. Kenny was a loving husband and proud father. In lieu of flowers, please direct memorial contributions to St. Luke's Foundation with designation to the Inpatient Hospice Unit. Condolences can be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. From Cedar Rapids, Julie Ann Ryan, age 75, passed away Sunday, January 28, at St. Luke's Hospital. Celebration of Life gathering will be from 2 to 5 p.m. on Saturday, February 10, at the Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, located at 2121 Bowling Street, Southwest. The family asks that everyone attending please wear casual attire. Julie was born July 24, 1948, in Postville, the daughter of Lynn and Lillian Russell Winters. She graduated from Wakan High School, the class of 1966. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family, and online condolences expressed at com. From Mason City, John, known as Jack Victor Cookman, 95, passed away Friday, January twenty-sixth, with his family by his side, a visitation will be held on Saturday, February 3rd at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home from 9.30 a.m. until service time at 11 a.m. with the certified celebrant Dr. James Coyle officiating. The celebration of life for Jack is being planned for his Mason City family at a later date. Jack was born on September 26, 1928 to Victor and Alice Wolski-Cookman in Mason City. Donations may be directed to the Mason City High School Athletic Hall of Fame in Jack Cookman's honor. From Cedar Rapids, Gloria Louise Eels, age 86, passed away Friday, January twenty sixth at Cottage Grove Place in Cedar Rapids. Gloria was born on August 3, 1937, to Norval and Shirley Meeker Eels. She completed her master's degree in education at the University of Iowa and taught history in the Cedar Rapids School District for over 30 years before retiring from Washington High School. She was an active member of St. Paul's Methodist in Cedar Rapids. Memorials may be made to Cedar Rapids Hospice, and online condolences are welcome at iowacremation.com. And lastly from Cedar Rapids, Dennis Charles Bradley, age 85, passed away Wednesday, January 31st, He was a beloved husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. The family will host a celebration of life on Saturday, February 3, at Salem United Methodist Church, 3715 33rd Avenue Southwest, at 1 p.m., with the Rev. Stacia Fine and Matt German presiding. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service. Tian Funeral Home is caring for Dennis and his family. Dennis was born July 28, 1938, graduated from Roosevelt High School in 1956 and went on to serve for two years in the United States Navy. Memorials are suggested to Unity Point Hospice, St. Luke's Hospital, Cedar Rapids. Online condolences can be left at tnfuneralhome.com. Turning now to the sports page, Girls Wrestling is the headline story, Plenty of Excellence Storyline for State Tourney. This story by Riley Cole. Today and Friday, there will be 448 wrestlers who will toe the line in hopes of becoming a state champion at the second IGHSAU Girls State Wrestling Tournament at the Xtreme Arena in Coralville. Action gets underway at 10 a.m. on Thursday. Here are five things to watch. Decorah's Naomi Simon can cement her name into history by becoming the first four-time girls' state wrestling champion. The Iowa women's wrestling recruit is undefeated this year with a 43-0 record. En route to her 170-pound title in the Region 8 Super Regional, Simon recorded first-period falls over all her opponents. Simon will lead Decorah, which is one of the top team contenders for this year's tournament. The top three spots in the Iowa Wrestling Coaches and Officials Association rankings at 130 pounds are locals. Prairie's Mackenzie Childers leads the pack at number one. Vinton Shelsberg's Chloe Saund- Sanders and Alburnett's Linny Gusick are number two and number three, respectively. Childers was Prairie's lone super-regional champion in Region 5, recording first-period pins in all her matches. Sanders also pinned her way to the 130 title in Region 6, which included a pin over number 5 Lexi Peterson of Bettendorf in the finals. Gusick finished third in Region 6. Additional Eastern Iowa wrestlers ranked at 130 include East Buchanan's Destiny Krumm, at number six, Lynn Mar's Brielle Park at number seven, and Anna Moses Addison Musser and West Delaware's Kylie Shoup tied for number nine. Last season there was a little bit of West Delaware orange and black in the field of girls state wrestling competitors. There will be much more this year as the Hawks tripled their number of qualifiers. Returning state qualifiers include Shoup and Anna O'Rear. The four additional Hawks who punched their ticket to state are Addison Schulte, Lexi Bunting, Abigail O'Rear, and Samantha Murray. The Hawks have been wrestling tough, finishing second at the Womack Tournament behind Vinton Shellsburg and third in the Region 7 Tournament behind Cedar Falls and defending state champion Waverly Shellrock last season iowa valley's brianna peach missed out on the finals by just two points this season the sophomore is undefeated with the 31-0 record and ranked number two she's second to the defending 235 pound state champion olivia Huckfelt of spencer at super regionals last week peach didn't wrestle more than a minute in each of her three matches to win the 235 title Peach comes from a strong bloodline of high-caliber wrestlers. Her sisters, Millie and Emma, both won Girls Wrestling State Championships. The IWCOA has Maylee and Autumn Ellsbury of South Tama ranked number 2 in the 135 and 170-pound weight classes, respectively. Bailey is ranked 2nd to Dubuque Wallert freshman Bella Miller, while Autumn is ranked 2nd to Simon of Decorah. The Ellsbury sisters have a combined record of 63-2. and Maley's loss came in mid-November by a narrow 12-10 to 10 decision to Benton Community's Lizzie Wolfe at the South Tama Invitational. As for Autumn, her lone defeat came during the South Tama Invitational to Briar Blake of North Tama by fall. Maley is the defending 135-pound state champion, while Autumn came in fourth place a year ago. In boys wrestling, West Delaware earns another bid, this story by Riley Cole. On the back of West Delaware boys wrestling practice shirts is a simple slogan: Earning it. The fourth-ranked Hawks did just that with a 43 to 24 win over number 23 Decorah in Class 2A Regional Duel Tuesday night, earning a berth to the Class 2A State Duels Tournament Saturday at Extreme Arena in Coraville. It took the Hawks' entire lineup to get the win, and Coach Jeff Voss couldn't have been more pleased with his team. We wrestled really well, Voss said. I was really proud of how, how our guys battled and responded to all the adjustments they made. West Delaware's senior class will be in the state duels tournament for the fourth time. They've just kept getting better all year long, Voss said. What a great environment for wrestling. They'll remember this one for a long time. Seniors Braden Murray and Garrison Gillahan were victorious with first period falls at 120 and 175, respectively, and were catalysts in the Hawks keeping the momentum. Gillahan credited the Hawks' presence at state duels to their work ethic in the practice room. We just come in and battle every day, Gillahan said. We have a vision and try to accomplish it. Every year. It's paying off right now. We look good as a team. One of Maury's underclassmen teammates looked good against his foe from Decorah. In the 106-pound bout, West Delaware's Lucas Peters showed the Vikings' Kelton Casterton the lights in 2 minutes, 42 seconds, sending the Hawks' crowd into a frenzy. Our 106-pounder had a big win there, Maury said. It got us all fired up. In total, the Hawks had six bonus point wins. Brent Yankovic at 190 and Ryan Hilby at 150 also won by fall, and Liam Weber had a 12-3 to major at 157. Voss knows Tuesday night's win was a total team effort, and it showed. The thing I love about the duels is that it's a team thing, Voss said. It took every kid on our squad to get this tonight, whether it's in the practice room or whatever. They are all giving great effort. They deserve this. With a short turnaround to Saturday, Gillahan knows work can still be done. We have to all step up and work our way to victories, Gillahan said. We need to keep getting bonus points to help us succeed. Decorah defeated 13th-ranked Benton Community 46-24 to in the opening round on Tuesday. In sports of area interest for today, again, it is the state championships at Xtreme Arena in Coralville for girls wrestling in high school bowling. Lenmar is at Washington at the Lancer Lanes at 3 p.m. Turning now to the Hoopla section, Tamales and Tequila is the title of this article by Elijah Decius. With 31 Mexican restaurants in the city of Cedar Rapids alone, authenticity is one of the biggest qualifiers, guiding many diners to choose their favorite for traditional street food or hybrid entrees. But one restaurateur is standing out from the crowd, by turning the tables, telling the people who love her food the most to make it themselves. Rio Burrito's new workshop for tamales and tequila, introduced in January, is letting diners take their cultural appreciation to the next level by giving them some skin in the game. With just a handful of ingredients, Mexican food lovers are finding out just how much labor goes into the dishes they love most. For $24, You can buy a dozen tamales from owner Phoebe Rios, who spends an entire day making roughly 500 tamales each time she accepts orders. For about the same price, you can learn how to make them, take a half a dozen home, have a few drinks, and make a few friends along the way. The class takes two hours, just enough time to give a taste of what it takes to make the dish traditionally eaten for breakfast in Mexico i wanted to educate people on how to make sure they understand it's a labor of love rio said every generation is different but i feel like people are becoming more accepting wanting to know more before it was something they didn't give a second thought now they're intrigued about the processes that lend authenticity to their favorite foods for its introduction students first learn an important lesson in authenticity for any culture Rarely is there only one way to make something across an entire diverse country. In Mexico, a country with more than 126 million people, over 32 states, there are about 500 different variations of tamales. A tamal, or tamo, in every corner of the country is going to taste differently based on the source of the corn used in masa, the corn flour dough, that makes the base. Phoebe Rios, who grew up in Chicago, channels her street food focus through a northern Mexico heritage. Today, many Mexicans and Americans use a commercially produced type of corn flour mix. Rios prefers a type that technically is used for tortillas more than tamales. It's less coarse and easier to cook. A bag of corn husks are passed around the room for a smell. The dried husks have a unique pungent smell adjacent to vinegar from the preservative used to keep them in storage. Another part of the laborious process is removing that smell by soaking them in hot water. If you come across a hair from corn tassels or corn silk, brush it off. And if you spot a corn moth, just shake it off before cleaning in hot water, she said. They're harmless. Next, those making tamales learn a lesson in tactile sensitivity, by deciphering which side of the corn husk is more smooth. The smooth side serves as the interior of the tamal. Masa dough is made with corn flour, an ingredient of choice to bind the flour, be it corn oil, vegetable oil, crisco, or lard, and your seasoning of choice, typically something like salt or chicken bouillon. Water or broth is folded into the kneading process. Participants are given a spoon to portion the soft, spreadable dough onto husks at the desired thickness. By the end, most found better luck using their fingers. After filling with the students' choices of meat or beans and cheese, tamales are folded neatly into their husks and steamed over boiling water for 45 minutes. Tamales can be cooked and then frozen for longer storage of large batches. Freezing before they're steamed is not advised, Rios said. If you're going to dive in and make them, just be mentally prepared that it's going to be messy. It's going to be a lot of work, but at the end of the day, it's all worth it, said Rios, who lined tables with covers before the class started. In abbreviating the article and at a glance, more workshops to make tamales and taste tequila are being scheduled in the coming weeks at Rio Burrito's That's located at 5001 First Avenue Southeast Suite 104 in Cedar Rapids. The restaurant also is formulating workshops to make homemade tortillas and pinatas. To learn more about upcoming classes, go to the restaurant's Facebook page. And for more information or offerings, go to RioBurritos.com. Finishing up with a brief look at the weather. Mostly cloudy today through the rest of the weekend. Cedar Rapids looking for a high of 48 today and a low of 37. And those temperatures stay pretty constant through the forecast period. The normal high in Cedar Rapids today is 29. The normal low is 12. A record high of 54 degrees was set in 1911. A record low of 21 degrees below zero was set in 1918. Sunset tonight is 5.22 p.m., sunrise tomorrow at 7.18 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 3 minutes of daylight. And we are in the waning gibbous moon phase with moonrise at 12.21 a.m. and set at 10.43 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today on IRIS. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access today's reading online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening. Have a great, safe day.
1: People's pharmacy health headlines. At high doses, nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest, but statistically significant.
2: Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's adverse event reporting system analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker, such as ranitidine or famotidine, served as controls, since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage.
1: There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease.
2: Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery.
1: Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.